Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, December 20th by Pastor Tim Voth. This is the third message in our sermon series entitled Christmas Spirit, Advent 2020. Check out SardisFellowship.com for more information about our church. So we're going through the Advent season and lighting each candle together in a sermon series we've called The Christmas Spirit, The Spirit of Christmas. And today we're lighting the peace candle. Now, I don't think our culture associates peace, tranquility, rest, quiet, and relaxation with the Christmas spirit. It's more like busyness, hustle and bustle, plans, 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 to-do lists, shopping, 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 decorating and cramming into shopping malls or scrolling endlessly through Amazon for the perfect gift till our eyes glaze over and fall out. Busyness, not rest, usually dominates the Christmas season. Usually. But this Christmas looks a lot different. We might not be as busy, no big family dinners to plan, no staff parties, no long to-do lists, at least not as long, no church services. This Christmas, we might actually get some quiet, but just because you have more quietness, it doesn't mean you have peace. Many moments that should be peaceful, a scenic walk to see some Christmas lights, sitting around with a belly full of turkey, spending time with family, enjoying toys after all the presents are opened can be turned sour quite quickly. I remember last year trying to make gingerbread houses with my boys. Should be peaceful, nice family activity, right? Well, first the icing bag exploded, and then all the walls started falling down, and soon it was more dad in an irritated huff doing it all by himself than an enjoyable, peaceful time with the family. I mean, you get it, right? We want peace, but even when we get an opportunity for it, we're pretty good at spoiling it. And why is that? Well, there's a lot that can wreck our peace. First, in ourselves, we can have deep anger, unrest, anxiety, fear, inner turmoil that we don't know how to sort through, and sometimes being busy even gives us a good excuse to be distracted from that. We have conflicts with family, as petty as, where should we put the tree, to as deep as animosity that makes family members not talk to one another, constantly fight, or at least keep a tense, false peace. What about our world? I don't think I have to tell you how little peace there seems to be in our world. It's absurd when literally every single topic is polarizing. Pick any topic these days and you'll find deep, seemingly irreconcilable polarization and bitter anger hostility in the middle. I don't think we have to beat around the bush here. Masks, lockdown measures, COVID itself, vaccines, civil disobedience, politics, elections, race, policing, gender. Each of these topics have caused massive tension and division right now in our society. 2020 has been rife with unrest, hostility, conflict, war, and hatred. If we have ever needed peace, it is now. And if we have ever been so lost as to not even know how to achieve it, it's now. This is a complex puzzle that no one has the answer to. We're desperate for peace within ourselves, in our relationships, and in our world. We need an answer to all of this. One person on our leadership team said this a while ago, This Christmas, I find myself more excited about peace on earth than a tree and presence. Maybe you can relate to that. That's the peace that I want to talk about today. The peace of the true Christmas spirit is the peace that only Jesus can bring to us and our relationships and our world. There's a word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that you may have heard, shalom. Say it with me, shalom. You now know exactly as much Hebrew as I do. (laughs) I love that word though. I love it because it means peace, but the picture of peace is so holistic that it encompasses everything. More than just stillness or quietness, it refers to right relationships, 
True shalom is when we are in right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with our world and creation. Shalom. What we first had in the Garden of Eden with God, everything in harmony, everything in its right place, everything complete, everything whole. This word is used in the Old Testament for a variety of different things, all painting a big picture of peace. It can be used to describe complex things that are all in alignment, not just an absence of war, but people actually working together for one another's benefit. It can even refer to a stone that has no cracks or a wall that fits perfectly together. To bring shalom is to bring restoration, to bring unity, harmony, reconciliation, and ultimately peace. So a picture of peace that I think of, instead of just kicking up your heels on a sandy beach, is that of stonemasonry. And I go to that analogy because I did it for almost a decade. Picture a job site. It's loud, noisy, messy, saws are going off, dust everywhere, hammering, yelling over tools. There are all these stones that don't quite fit and you have to somehow put them together. There's mortar and mesh and some banged fingers and cuts along the way, hard work and sweat. But at the end, this chaotic puzzle fits together and there's a sense of accomplishment, restoration, unity, wholeness, beauty, and peace. Now I think we catch glimpses of true peace in our world that give us hope for ultimate peace and act as a shadow of something we both remember from the garden and look forward to, but they usually don't last long. There's one example I came across a while ago that I thought was actually pretty amazing. In World War I in 1914, right on December 25th, Christmas Day, some soldiers, German, French, and British, on the Western Front laid down their arms, met one another in the no man's land in between, and celebrated Christmas together. Apparently, they shouted Merry Christmas to one another, set up Christmas trees, exchanged some goodies, kicked a little football around, and talked to one another. It was only in a few spots along the front. Other areas still fought away, but in some places there was a perfect little picture of the peace of Christmas. Imagine if they had all put down their guns for good. But sadly, that's not the world we live in. Someone who was there, Alfred Anderson, wrote that it was a short peace in a terrible war. The next day, the fighting continued, and the higher-ups strictly forbid anything like that ever happening again. A glimpse of peace so close, yet so far. One person who saw a glimmer of peace was the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah lived around 520 BC during the reign of Darius, the king of Persia, and he wrote the book Zechariah found in your Bibles, which you can turn to now if you've got yours. You may know the story. Many years before, the whole nation of Israel was taken into exile, the northern part first by Assyria, then Judah, the southern part, later by Babylon. They were taken into exile by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and their temple back in Jerusalem was destroyed. There, in a foreign land, the people longed to be restored and to return. They longed for shalom. They longed for a king to come and reign once again in Israel. They also longed for a priest to come and restore their relationship with God. See, one of the reasons they went into exile was because of the disobedience, injustice, idolatry, and corruption of Israel's leaders, which trickled down, encouraging the same behavior in the people. God was punishing them in a horrible exile. These leaders were meant to establish shalom in the land, but they disobeyed over and over. You know, one would rise up that was promising, but then maybe their son would just wreck it all. Or one would start well, destroying idolatrous altars, making huge reforms in the land, and then would end horribly by marrying tons of foreign women and being turned away from God. I mean, just read through Judges or First and Second Kings to see this pattern. Hope for peace, then hope's dashed over and over and over. Finally, Persia 
wipes out Babylon, where the Israelites were trapped. And in 538 BC, this new king, Cyrus, allows them to go back to their land, and the temple even starts getting rebuilt. And this is where the book of Zechariah finds itself. Zechariah was speaking to a people who probably had some very hesitant optimism, and I don't blame them. If you look at chapter 7, 1 to 3, you can see how the people were still fasting in the fifth month to mourn the loss of the temple, which is the month that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. There were other fasts they were doing as well, in light of all the other tragic things that had happened. They were stuck in mourning the past, weary of putting their hope in something again. And so they asked Zechariah, should we keep fasting like this? Or is this finally going to be the age of peace we've been longing for? Listen how he responds. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Basically saying, if, you, if your fasting is leading you to be a people of justice and generosity, go for it. That's what God has always called you to. The people who got you into exile didn't, didn't listen, so don't be like them. But more important than fasting is being a people of justice. Don't let mourning the past and hopelessness of any future peace stop you from being a people of peace in the present. He goes on and basically says, yes, peace is coming. Listen to this beautiful image of Shalom. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women ripe in, of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of, the people, of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. God is doing something new with the remnant. The promise you see throughout the Old Testament, from Abraham through to Jeremiah, is dawning now. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Shalom, right relationship with God, true peace with your creator and sustainer is coming. And he goes on. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. There will be a sowing of shalom. This small beginning has the potential to grow into that peace they long for. And it can happen to them if it happens through them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months 
will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Make for peace. Love, truth, and peace. Peace is possible and on the verge of growing into reality if they plant peace, water it, nourish it, tend to it, they will reap it. And many leaders had led them astray in the past and they must be wondering, well, who's going to lead the charge on all this? And Zechariah sees two main characters at play here. First, he sees Joshua. He was the priest that he talks about back in chapter 3, which is pretty cool. You should check it out. The accuser, or Satan, is reminding him of all of Israel's filthy sins, and Joshua has dirty robes and he's disqualified, but God gives him clean robes, and he takes away his iniquity and gives him a promise. If you will walk in my ways, you shall rule my house. He sees in this man a potential for restoration with God, as he is the priest and helps the nation follow the rituals and ensure proper worship of Yahweh. Now he also sees another person named Zerubbabel in chapter 4 in some pretty crazy imagery. Zerubbabel is from the royal line and is an heir to David's throne, the coming king, returning from exile to reestablish the reign of Israel's kingdom. These two will accomplish it, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's these two, the priest and the king, who Zechariah looks to as the ones who will bring peace. The prophet saw them as the ones to usher in shalom, and they did in many ways, but he also saw them as a template or a pattern of something to come ultimately one day. The prophets often had this telescopic vision. So imagine you're, you're on a mountain and you look across a vast mountain range. You see some mountains way in the background, some in the middle, and some real close. The prophets often saw that way too. Not so much in accurate timelines and exact fulfillments pinpointing where each peak is relative to one another, but in patterns, overlapping translucent images that line up. So when they speak, they may speak of an outline of something they see now, that will be filled later. And with that in mind, listen to what he says about peace for the nations. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So that might sound familiar to you. But which king is coming to them? Zerubbabel? Yes, in their time. He's the frame. One day will be fulfilled by another. And which priest? Joshua? Yes, but also someone else. The picture is kind of compressed and harmonized. A king and also a priest who will one day bring full peace. In other words, the Messiah. Enter the Christmas story. Enter the Prince of Peace. Enter Jesus. Now there was another king setting up a different kingdom at the time that Jesus was born. And his name was Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. And if you weren't careful, you might actually think he was the one to fulfill the answer to the, to the people's longings for peace. There was something called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the Roman peace. This peace was established through, in Rome through wars, territorial expansion, and brutality. Inscriptions show that Caesar Augustus was being worshipped in the East as a savior through whom have come glad tidings. He brought peace on earth and had brought the solution or salvation to the human race. He was revered and worshipped by the people as God on earth, God with them. Does all of this sound familiar? All those titles truly do not belong to Caesar, but to Jesus, born in a humble stable to a humble family in a small town who was quietly, silently ushering the true kingdom. 
a kingdom from a different world, outside the system. In Luke 2, we see angels announcing his arrival, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill among men. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, finally come to bring shalom. Zechariah's blurry image of king and priest comes into focus in the God-man, Jesus. So why go through that historical recap? Because we need to know what the Bible is telling us. No kingdom or king in this world, nothing in this world can give us true peace. It will always disappoint. Only peace from outside the system, a different world, a different kingdom can do that. There's no government, no ruler, no system, no ideology, no movement, no leader, no person, no dream, no goal, no accomplishment, no power within us that can give us true peace. Only Jesus can. He offers true peace between us and God, true peace between each other, and ultimately true peace on earth. That peace can be ours. That peace is a gift. It won't come by power or might, but by God's spirit. That is the Christmas spirit of peace that we need. So first, Jesus came to bring us peace with God. This is the heart of Christmas. God has given us the gift of peace with him for free. Paul in 2 Corinthians says it like this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's the true priest. He has brought us near to God by his own blood shed for us. That little baby grew up, sat on a donkey, entered Jerusalem, claiming himself to be that humble king of Zechariah. And why a donkey? Most kings rode in on horses after battle, but Jesus didn't expand his kingdom by shedding other people's blood. He invited you and me into his kingdom by shedding his own blood for us. This humble, donkey-riding king gives us his life. When we trust in him, which simply means to reach out and accept his free gift, we're fully forgiven forever. No payment, no other sacrifice, no more guilt, no more shame. All of it washed away. We're cleansed, made white as snow. Remember that image of Joshua the priest in Zechariah? We're given white garments and our failings are remembered no more. That's shalom restoration in our relationship with our maker. It's possible and it can be yours when you actually put your trust in Jesus. And if you haven't done that, there's no reason to delay. You can find true peace with God this Christmas season. He's the priest, but he's also the king. Not only are we made right with the king, but under his lordship we can have peace. He's not a harsh king. He's not Caesar. He's not irritable, prone to mood swings, harsh, power hungry. He rules with love, kindness, compassion, undivided attention and provision towards his people. Jesus put it like this when he's talking about the kingdom, the true kingdom in Matthew 6. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This Christmas is a hard one for all, especially hard for some. Income may have been booming last year, but this year things are tight. Maybe you've lost your job or the future looks uncertain. But true peace never really came from those things in the first place. Under the rule and reign of Jesus, you can find true peace because you can trust that he is actually sovereign over your life. Under any, unlike any government, he doesn't just control some policies. He controls every molecule 
and not a thing happens apart from his sovereign control. And that, that king is for you. He knows your needs. He will meet them. Right in the middle of fears, we can say confidently, he's okay with me, he's in control of my life, and he will work out whatever I'm going through for good. That peace is an anchor in the middle of any storm. And so peace with God is the starting point of us extending that peace to others at Christmas. So what does that look like? Pretty similar to the picture Zechariah was painting for his people. Love, truth, and peace. Jesus carries it further, though. We're called to be peacemakers, and in this new kingdom, this peace doesn't just end at borders. It must extend even to our enemies. This is the hard stuff. This is the hard work of shalom. This is the brick and mortar, the sawing and hammering of the whole thing. If possible, we're called to live at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on us. This is the uncomfortable part that makes the whole, yay, peace on earth, not so fun anymore, because it affects how we live. In every conversation, email, text, post, or tweet, are we truly trying to love peace? In all of these potentially polarizing topics, are we honestly working towards shalom or actively trying to destroy it? How about in our relationships? Is there anyone in your life right now that you have a conflict with? Is there a person in your life whom you've had a falling out with, deep disagreement, unresolved tension, or an all-out hatred for or from? A family member? Someone in the body of Christ? A friend? Think hard about it. Does any of it depend on you? Is there anything you can do to make things right? Sometimes reconciliation seems so impossible that we just don't do anything or we're too afraid and we don't have courage. Or worse, we continue to stew in unresolved, broken peace. And this is why Zechariah tells the people to be strong and unafraid right before he tells them how to walk in peace. Take time after this sermon sometime today to pray about that relationship that comes to mind. I can't tell you what to do in it. I can't tell you who's in the wrong or how to resolve it. But I can remind you of the example of Jesus towards you who sought you out full of grace, initiating restoration and reconciliation. Let's extend that peace to others and trust that God's spirit will guide us into peace. Let's make this Christmas one of reconciliation. Let's be eager to maintain unity and peace, to cease retaliation and to love our enemies as Jesus loved us. And this leads to the last point. Jesus is the one who speaks peace to the nations and ultimately brings peace to our world. And I just want to read some lyrics from a song called O Day of Peace that we just sang. O day of peace that dimly shines through all our hopes and prayers and dreams. Guide us to justice, truth, and love delivered from our selfish schemes. May swords of hate fall from our hands, our hearts from envy find release, till by God's grace our warring world shall see Christ's promised reign of peace. We don't know how all these broken pieces will fit together, but we can rest assured that because of first advent, Jesus will return and make all things new in second advent. And while we wait for world peace, let's embody the spirit of peace to everyone we encounter this season. So here are some discussion questions for you. One, how would you define peace? Two, in what ways do you see our current world in need of peace? And three, how does knowing there is a day of peace coming one day animate you to live in the peace here and now? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.